Hi, and welcome back to Don't Sweat It, the show inside a sauna. I'm Jen Kramer. I'm here with my co-host, Andre Jick, and our guest, Mark Cobb. And as the sauna heats up, the questions get hotter. We'll start at level one, and by level five, the sauna will feel like over 500 degrees on our bodies. And I'm super excited to talk to Mark Cobb. Mark and I met actually 10 years ago. And let me just tell you some of the things this guy has done. Mark has been an Air Force command pilot who flew 142 combat missions in Southeast Asia, a deputy chief for long-range planning at the Pentagon, a diplomat, a CFO, an attorney who worked as a general counsel for an insurance company, an author, and he's currently traveling the world in his retirement. Mark, thank you for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. It's a lot of fun. Obviously, Vegas is always fun. Yeah, so I have to say, Mark is a friend of mine that stops randomly throughout Vegas, and he travels the world, as you've heard, and he visits me probably a couple times a year, and all he does is just travel the world, and he is the epitome of what it is to be living the perfect life in retirement. So all these things we think about when we invest, all this, the stuff we talk about with finance, this guy is living the life, and... To get to this point, Mark, I have so many questions, you have so many cool stories that I want you to share with us, but take us back and uh, let's start at the beginning of sort of where you went to school and your first job and how you get to this level where you're able to travel the world and just do whatever you want now. Oh, well, well I went to school in many, many places and maybe that helped uh, figuring things out because uh, one of the things I did as a child was begin saving. Uh, and I didn't save to buy something for myself. I actually saved to buy something for my grandmother. And uh, so it made her happy and it made me happy. So I think that's uh, something about money. You know, it's not just about the money. It's about uh, achieving some happiness with the money. Right. And uh, so I started that from early childhood. Uh, I went to school many places, uh, Kansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, England, and Norway. And then eventually I ended up in high school in Kansas. My father retired from the Air Force. And that was uh, quite a shock because I went from a big embassy party uh, in the capital of Norway to a very small country town that did not know how to spell the word dance or party. Sure. But there's many, many opportunities, and it's just like investments. You look for the opportunities, and the opportunities there, a school of uh, 100 people in high school, 14 students in my high school class. 14. 14. Jeez. Five girls, nine boys. We had a great football team. <laughs> You know, uh, so he had, you know, played football, basketball, track. We got to travel the state, uh, many opportunities. Uh, and being a small school, you know, we were in uh, three-act plays, opera, music festivals, many, many things. And uh, so I like to equate that with the idea of investing. Invest, diversify yourself. Sure. From there, uh, I went on and uh, went to university at the Air Force Academy. So that was a big start. It's so fascinating. So speaking of Norway, by the way, you said you're sixth grade. Mark called me up a couple of weeks ago and he's like, Andre, I'm getting together with my sixth grade class and we're going to have a reunion. <laughs> Do you want to come? And I'm just like, okay, who's going to be there? Oh, my classmates. I'm like, how old are they? He's like, I was 75 and over. <laughs> I'm like, sign me up, man. So we get together at this restaurant and I meet everybody. There's like 20 people there. And you guys all lived in Norway, from yes, what I understand, that's right. and all of their parents were like these high-level diplomats and Air Force officers and all these really high-up high people. And I got to 
meet them and he introduced me to every single one of them around the table and all of them got up and shook my hand and I'm like Mark you're like introducing me to every single person <laughs> and after our dinner we went to go see Wayne Newton which as a kid growing up here in Vegas I used to see his billboards at the Flamingo Hotel and I never knew exactly what he did and I knew he was a singer but I didn't know he was still singing and we went to this show we saw it which hilarious one of the classmates <laughs> as we entered the show we see the usher and the guy who set it up one of Mark's friends he gives the usher a stack full of tickets. He's like, here's the tickets. The usher takes the tickets and he's like, sir, those are bookmarks. <laughs> he's like, oh, they are. He literally has 20 bookmarks with him. Like actual bookmarks. Actual bookmarks of Wayne Newton. It's not the tickets of Wayne Newton. Oh, These are wow. bookmarks from the show. So he's a real fan. <laughs> he's a real fan, but he thought they were tickets. So he leaves. He gets the tickets. Anyway, we see the Wayne Newton show. It was really cool. And Wayne at this point is 80 years old. Is that yes, right? Yes, 80 years 80 old. 80 years old. But what's funny is... The common thread is he used to travel to all the conflict zones back when you were in the Air Force, and he would sing in all these different regions and all these different cities. And so you guys all had this shared common interest of this singer, and that's how you guys got together. And Well, that's how the they reunion. knew him, yes. He, uh, he did the performances at the USO shows. Yeah. Uh, before that, it was Bob Hope. Yeah. And uh, so you meet all these wonderful celebrities, especially even in my travels. I met Bob Hope and his wife, Dolores, when I was over in Moscow yep. for a couple mm -hmm. of years. And, and, and uh, I actually met Mark at a place called City Center here in Vegas, which is ironically where I met Jen Kramer as well. And, <laughs> that's uh, right. Hey, that's good. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. So, so Mark has been this guy that's just taken me on a lot of adventures. And throughout my friendship with him, he's just told me so many cool stories of not only what he's done, but also how he's made money and all these different careers. So... Okay, so Air Force is the Air Force pilot. What what happened so there? You were a command pilot for yes. the yes. Air Force. And uh, and that's uh, you know, another thing about investments, you know, it was an investment. We always say invest in yourself. So, getting the education at the Air Force Academy, that was my goal was the education. I wanted to have some science, I wanted to have some social science. So, I had to struggle through aeronautical engineering, astronautical engineering, but I got a Bachelor of Science in International Affairs. And then uh, after that, uh, they sent me to pilot training. So there was another million-dollar investment by the government, which made my skills more valuable. Sure. Which, uh, Absolutely. And flying was great fun. Uh, which, right. which plane did you fly? I flew the uh, Boeing 707, the aerial refueling operations primarily. And then later I flew the... Uh, T-35? Well, the T-38 was a trainer, T -38, sorry. which is a fabulous little airplane, like strapping a, a, a jet. It's called the T-38 Talon, right? Yes, that's the, correct. The reason I know this is because I was in ROTC in high school in the Air Force program, and I was going to go to the academy, and I actually wanted to be a pilot as well, but at the time, I didn't have my uh, U.S. citizenship yet. I was 19 years old. My parents just got theirs, and I didn't get mine in time so i didn't go to the academy but my life would have been so different had i been a citizen when i was 19 because my goal was to go to the air force academy as well oh wow i did not know that yeah so That's you never know where life is going to lead you but i think you came out very well in the it, end here. It, it was worth it it was worth it it all turned out okay which yeah, is I, just crazy yeah i did spend 24 years with the air force uh, and i spent a couple years out of andrews air force base flying the saber liner uh, business jet, uh, which was a lot of fun. That's just eight passengers, so it's more maneuverable than the big Boeing 707 with, with four jet engines. Yeah. yeah. And we all have some kind of Air Force-related connection because my mom was actually born on a U.S. Air Force base in Wiesbaden, Germany. Wow. Because what? my grandpa <laughs> was a doctor in the U.S. Air Force, and so they were stationed over there, 
at the time my mom was born. She lived there until she was two years old. And then they moved to New York. <laughs> That's so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. We were all learning things this, about this each is, other. This is why I do this podcast. I get to know really interesting people <laughs> and things about my friends I never knew before. <laughs> well, and I the interesting the thing, the, all these travels, like when I was in England, I went to the same school that Captain John Smith from the John Smith Pocahontas days in the early sure. colonial time of America went to. That school is more than 550 years old already. Oh, that's wow. where you went to school for your uh, pilot training? No, that was sixth grade. Oh, sixth grade, okay. Uh, fifth grade. Got it, okay. <laughs> okay. Now, school played a large role in your life because you were trained to be a pilot in the Air Force, a command pilot. You also got your master's. You also are an attorney, so you graduated yes. from law school. You served as general counsel. So there are so many areas that we could go into so many different but, discussions we could have but those gave you opportunities like when i was the pilot okay one of the first opportunities was well you're stationed at your first base what do you do do you rent a house rent an apartment and sure. and i had a friend and and 20 i think we were like 21 years old you know he bought a house and i was encouraged i said okay if he can do it i can do it and there's the opportunity. Let's go buy a house. So here I am in Spokane, Washington, buying my first house. I know nothing about houses, you know, 22 years old. You have to make a down payment. And uh, so then I had a, a roommate at the time that could help pay the mortgage on it. And mortgages back then were 7%. Mm. So, but uh, houses cost like seven raspberries back then. <laughs> so yeah, my first house only cost 20. Eight raspberries, Andre. Eight raspberries. Come on. My first house, a small two-bedroom, you know, uh, one bath. Uh, cost uh, twenty thousand bucks back a, then. Wow! And mm. do you know rough idea how much that house would be worth today? Uh, it's, like it's probably a hundred thousand. No. What a hundred thousand? But the one I the next house I had I bought in California a couple years later. That's right. And I bought it for only sixty thousand, and I made like a hundred and fifty percent on my down on my leverage. Sure. So it sold for ninety thousand two years later, and now it's worth probably a million. Jeez. In Monterey, California. Monterey, California. Yeah. <laughs> Easily over a million, probably. So, yeah. yeah. And you now own several properties. Yes, I have several, but uh, you know we have a place in Honolulu. Uh, I'm married now, so we've been married 25 years. Okay, so 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 let's talk retirement. We're going to kind of time travel back and forth in in your sure. careers, but okay. So so we have to go to level two, and then we'll talk yes. income as far as how much money you've made from the Air Force and what does your retirement look like as far as your pension sure. and benefits. Yeah, we so can look at that. I'm really interested in that. But let's go to level two right now. Okay, we'll cover that in level two. By the way, Mark is so much more, uh, uh, what's the word? <laughs> experienced. <laughs> He's a much more experienced sonagoer. He's just, he can handle heat, I can't. It's ridiculous. So back to where we were talking a little bit. <laughs> Okay, for the About viewer, housing? just some quick context here. As Mark just begins to speak normally, it, that's exactly when the steam just arrived in such a way that <laughs> it Andre punched, and I were like, oh. It punched us in the face, and Mark is like, so <laughs> anyway. Stop that. <laughs> As if it's nothing. Wow. Sorry, uh, squeegee time. Squeegee, no, squeegee time. time. Okay. Too much hot air in here. Yeah. <laughs> So, Mark, you've been saunaing for years. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, actually, uh, one of the things to stay in shape, uh, I used to swim for lunch. 
and uh, and you saunas as well uh, throughout my life for lunch what does that even mean yes well the lunch hour rather than go eat lunch eating i would swim yes what (laughs) wow okay now i wonder if this pro tip on how to save money (laughs) are you hungry (laughs) swimming instead wow wow okay there must be many people today who are also swimming during lunch but i wonder if this might be partially a generational thing because my grandpa, the grandpa, <laughs> You're kidding. doctor in the Air Force. I don't know if it's generational. Maybe it's an Air Force no. thing. But my grandpa, when he was, so he was a neurologist, and he would, during his lunch time, he actually had a shower that was built into his office so that he could go running. He was a marathon runner <laughs> and a really serious runner, and he would run during his lunch time <laughs> no and kidding. then shower at the office and go back to work as a neurologist. What? So wow. I wonder. Nice. Maybe it's the Air Force calling out. That gives me so many generation. new ideas for money-saving tips on my channel. <laughs> <laughs> Are you hungry? Go jogging instead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it, it does save going out and spending money for lunch, you know. Sure, it does. Uh, so I'm sleeping. also... A my, big... my thing was just sleeping. I, like, I'll take a nap, I'll wake up, and I won't be hungry. <laughs> but sorry, before okay. we get ahead of ourselves, we're, we're talking yes. about your retirement in uh, after the Air Force. So you were in the Air Force for how long? Uh, 24 years with so, the Air Force. So you got your full 20 years uh, benefits. 20 years retirement benefits. Yeah. And so you receive is, a pension. Yeah. Yes. What yes. does your income look like uh my pension now is around forty thousand plus forty thousand plus a year per yes year. so awesome. that would equate to uh, theoretically having a million dollars yeah which is fascinating mm-hmm. so after 20 years the air force paid you the equivalent of having a million dollars invested at four percent yes wow wow and when did you start and receiving that... that pension how many years have you been receiving it oh like 32 years ago <laughs> wow 32 years ago so yes. you retired or you stepped away from the air force at the age of 42 roughly Yes, yes. And I was wow. a lieutenant colonel, so all that's public information. Incredible. 42 years old. You were you were basically a millionaire uh, on paper as far as your passive sure, income. Sure, sure. That's incredible. And that doesn't even count any other investments. Well, and that's it's it. Like when Real estate played a role. Exactly. Real estate played a big role in the Air Force because they transfer you every two years. So when I was being transferred, I'd look for a nice house one that I want to live in and hopefully could maybe sell it in two years. And, and that worked fabulously. It just kept increasing and, and, uh, you leveraged your money. I sure. mean, you learned how to leverage 50,000 to $250,000. Uh, and so by the time I, I finished, I was having a nice house in Vail, Colorado, you know, skiing there. And I was at that time I was retired. So I was working with an insurance business and so uh, having fun so you and making money. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. I've always thought the Air Force and just the military in general is such a good way to build wealth because your expenses, if you play it right, are very little. And if you get your 20 years in, you basically have the equivalent of roughly a million dollars a portfolio. Yes, given but you to have you. to enjoy it too. You Obviously, to enjoy I enjoyed it, the sure. flying. I enjoyed the education. I, one of the things I valued, at, as I said at the very beginning, was getting an education. So as Jen mentioned, I'd, I got a master's degree in Monterey, California. That was, for me, it was almost like a two-year vacation. So, you know, I like to work hard, like to party hard. So Monterey was beautiful. It does. Go visit my friends in San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> go up to San Francisco to the opera. Lots of fun, sure, fun sure. activities. Yeah. Andre's like, I have witnessed oh, this. Oh, I, I have hard, witnessed this firsthand. <laughs> firsthand. I, yeah. One time I told Mark, I was like, hey, Mark, I'm going to Ostrakhan in Russia where my grandparents are. Uh, you know, do you want to come with me? And he's like, sure, of course. And we go to Russia and he goes to my hometown and... After that, you go to like Brazil and Germany and all these Georgia, all these crazy places. And <laughs> it's it's fascinating. And so okay, you so have such after such a sense of adventure. Yeah, yeah, he's an adventurer. That's that's incredible. 
So, so the I next think career. Uh, well, just just to sum up a little bit as sure. far as the housing investment was just one avenue, one opportunity, and I just took that opportunity as I made each step through through life, whether it was with the Air Force, and then when I be, was an attorney working with the insurance business, I also you know continued to leverage the housing business. Okay, so okay. all right, so attorney. So after the Air Force, yes, you quit to become an attorney. Yes. And yes. before we dive into that, let me just say, I think it's really fascinating how you've pivoted throughout your life and career, because I think that's something that more recently people are doing more and more. You see yes. these zigzagging career paths. Yeah. yeah. But I think, especially at the time when you were making those pivots, it seems like that was a more rare thing to do societally. Like more people during that time were staying with one job for decades and decades and throughout their whole career staying with that one job. Sure. So I think it's really interesting that you made those pivots and I'm curious about what motivated each pivot because you've had so many <laughs> careers, so many adventures. So can you sure. tell us more about that? Well, I think uh, pivots are based on your circumstances. Everybody has different opportunities. There's doors out there. You know, when the door opens, hey, if it's inviting, go for it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I actually, uh, when I was with the Air Force, I loved the flying element, but I also loved uh, the diplomacy element. And so when I was with the Air Force, so they sent me two years over in Moscow as a diplomat, and I was dealing negotiations with all the foreigners and the Russians at the time. Uh, also, I uh, spent two years traveling around the world just on a briefing team with the Air Force, which was exciting for me. Yeah. It made money, but it was exciting for me. And Mark, was this during the Cold War era when you were a diplomat? Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. So, it was so the in the very Cold high. War era. Yeah. Sure. It was very back in the, Brezhnev was the leader at the time. And, uh, and of course, Reagan had just come into office. And so it was a much more exciting time to be in Moscow when Reagan was in office. Right. And you meet people. That's the other thing about investments and opportunities. You look for networking. Networking also can sometimes help you with your net worthing. <laughs> sure, it does, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, when I was in Moscow, my boss was the uh, former president of IBM, Tom Watson. So we had a great relationship and uh, lots of fun. And you meet lots of people. So I have friends all around the world. And you learn how to speak Russian, too. <laughs> Some Russian, yes. It's funny, I've, t I've spoken to my parents in Russian. And then Mark just shows up and starts speaking <laughs> Russian. And it's like, I, I had no idea that you are actually able to speak it. So, uh, so yeah, those opportunities. And, and I relate that to investment opportunities as well. So when I left the Air Force... Uh, I had an opportunity to go work with an insurance company, and I had no idea what I was going to do, to be honest. I knew I had the lawyering skills, but you know, where do you put them? When did you get those lawyer skills? Were you still in the Air Force when you were going to school for law? Well, actually, I was out of the Air Force when I went to school for law, but through a, a crazy, crazy uh, jigsaw puzzle, sure. uh, the Air Force paid for everything and then gave me a big job at the Pentagon, which was fantastic and uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> Hold on. Before we branch out... <laughs> Hold on, was this, a, uh, was this part of the attorney job, the, the Pentagon job, or was this completely separate? No, this was, uh, I had my, my uh, attorney's license, but the job in the Pentagon was strictly uh, working long-range planning, and, uh, you know, I was with the, the various board members. Uh, at that time, some of the board members on the RAND Corporation included the chairman of Citicorp, and uh, so I'm meeting sure. very high-level people. Uh, you get to sit in, uh, like I was doing very high-level conferences with Did the, you have top-secret clearance? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's cool. So I would love to learn more about what it was like working in long-range planning at the Pentagon, and I think that could be a level three discussion. I think okay. so, too. That, that was a good transition. I like that. <laughs> Here we go, level three. 
Uh, so they put me on the cool end here, so I don't have to but it's suffer like too a, much. It's like a 10, that's probably like a five degree difference. It's not a crazy oh, It's a comfortable feeling, man. It's comfortable? <laughs> <laughs> Mark is the most laid back about this. Now, I, I feel like for the viewer at home, they're going to say, oh, you're going light on him or something. We are not. We are not at all. Not at all. This is the absolute intensity of, of the way it always yeah. is and and mark's a mark's a champ like he'll drive to vegas from kansas 16 hours straight that's true like mark how did you he's like i just drove here for 16 hours no non-stop i can't i complain about driving four and a half hours to la <laughs> <laughs> i don't understand where you get your endurance from i don't i don't get it and dylan who edits and produces the podcast and he's behind the camera now dylan always stops at pretty much every single rest stop along any road trip. <laughs> I, I have mean, some we friends have that do that. <laughs> that. Like, we'll have just pulled up, gotten a snack, yes. we'll get right back on the highway. I mean, we may be driving for four minutes and it's like, oh, there's another rest stop. <laughs> <laughs> at this rate, we're never going to get to our destination. More likes. So we got to get beyond the Air Force career somewhere along the way here. Sure, sure. Because yeah. that was 30 years ago, you know. Yeah. Mm. And uh, so the attorney career was fascinating because, again, I was involved in many opportunities. And you learn about money management. Uh, I was the uh, general counsel for the company, but I was also the treasurer and the secretary. So uh, I knew all about bonds and stocks. Yes. Uh, so I learned a lot from that. Were which, you investing in stocks at that point? Already? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the interesting things, I got involved in commercial real estate, which is another form of investment, which if you get into that, once you to that level, commercial real estate is you can leverage even more. So we had a $500,000 building that we were trying to sell, but it had to be renovated. I would, as I said, I exercise, I swim during lunch hours. Well, one of the people I met was a luxury home builder. I talked to him about renovations and we were on eye to eye. So he said, yes, he could do it meet the budget, meet the time. And he did. And so then the next big project was a million dollar building, a million and a half dollar building that uh, had been on the books that had to be totally renovated. And so I hired him to do that and he renovated it on budget, on time. We sold it, you know, uh, immediately a couple months later for, you know, three, four million dollars. So those opportunities and you can see those and you can use those eventually in your personal life so a lot of your wealth uh, throughout your life has been built using real estate mostly to begin with it was real estate and, and then later uh, I've as you get towards retirement uh, then I looked at uh, investments as far as cash flow yes and uh, and I like trying to give money back so the last few years I've been working with the chess world <laughs> so Jesus. I another I, branch <laughs> 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 Hold on, before we get to the chess stuff. Yes. Okay, so, so we have your we have your attorney uh, that you, you've done for how long? Oh, I did that for twenty five years. Twenty five years. Now, did you get a pension from that job? Uh, yes, I did have a four hundred one k. See, this as is what's well. so incredible because <laughs> our generation had we don't really have the defined benefit pension plan. That's not a thing. The four hundred one k replaced it. It was never meant to right. replace the pension right. plan, but nowadays there's really no jobs that offer a pension anymore. So the pension that you received from being an attorney, do you remember how much that was? Oh, it was over 100000 uh, plus. Per year? Well, no, not per year. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what the, but by the time I converted it, it was worth a couple of hundred thousand. Yeah, was you, that a pension or was that, that was a 401k? That was just a 401k investment. That was a 401k now, what's your pen pension monthly income from that job? 
Well, I've diversified, so I just maintain a cash flow. So my cash flow is basically a hundred thousand a year. Wow, that's incredible, though. And Jeez. and so then I've got my wife that also works, <laughs> so she helps out. There. But but a hundred thousand dollar a year cash flow income—that's a roughly two point five million dollar portfolio right. from four percent, and that's not counting the other real estate stuff. And that, that doesn't count my wife's contributions. And your wife—it wow. sounds like has had a very impressive. Oh, career she has. Of her own. Yeah, she worked with uh, Hilton Hotels as a worldwide sales director, and so we had some good opportunities there as well. And in fact, uh, you know, when I was working with the insurance, she was working with insurance conventions, so. There was a, a tie-in there that I could go to her and get this convention and get the best rates for Hilton Hotels for the business as well. So, I oh, mean, networking great. works. Look at that. You're a true power couple. <laughs> you are, yeah. And I know before filming, yesterday, Mark and I were having a conversation because the hotel where I do my show here in Vegas, Westgate, used to be the Las Vegas Hilton. Yes. So, Mark has stayed there and <laughs> had experiences. Yeah, my wife, uh, Francine, she's worked for Hilton for 35 years. So, that's wow. amazing. Uh, she's incredible. done a terrific job, and, and of course, she has friends all over as well. So after the attorney job, what what did you do next? Well, then I actually transferred to another insurance uh, organization and worked as their chief financial officer, Okay, which was uh, quite exciting because, again, I had been the treasurer, so I knew all about investments, and, and that worked wonderful, too. And then you learn a little bit more about uh, if you're going to go into the career field, of the different perks that go along with different jobs. And sure. and just like, you know, you recently heard about Elon Musk paying $42 million as a golden parachute to one of his CEOs. Yeah. CEOs. Well, you know, you learn about those perks and you know how to negotiate a good, a good position in your job. Sure. Right. I'm sure day to day, the experience of being an attorney, being general counsel for this insurance company versus being a CFO versus working at the Pentagon, I'm sure those are very different day-to-day -day experiences. So, absolutely, how would you describe just an average day in each of those? Did you enjoy one more than the other? Was uh, that experience extremely different day-to-day? -day? They were totally different. Uh, but when I'm with the insurance company, a lot of our business, you have to work with the insurance commissioners. You have to work with the bankers. Uh, a lot of people. So to get their attention, you usually had to get a golf. Uh, meeting. Oh. And so I'd love to leave my desk and be outside for four hours playing on a beautiful golf course. Uh, that was absolutely wonderful. So, so networking was a big part of your success as well. Yes, yes. And I also played golf with the Air Force. Yeah. You know, at the, you know, but I'm not a very good golfer, but whenever I play with these big, big, what I call them, big wigs, you know. Sure. Uh, I say, you play your game, I play my game. <laughs> uh, one time I was at the, uh, the uh, big hotel there in Colorado Springs and uh, the Broadmoor, and it was an investment conference, and we had a golf outing. And so I told the person I was playing golf, I said, I'm not very good, so don't pay attention to me, just play your own game. Well, you know, the first three or four holes, I'm hitting par, and he says, oh, you're just pulling my leg. Well, then I finally caught up, you know, where I got a few more bogeys, but he was really, <laughs> sure. thought I was pulling his leg. I was doing so well the first three or four holes. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Mark, do you have any advice for uh, younger people starting out their careers as far as what, what you remember accomplishing? Uh, is there any kind of blueprint that you can impart as far as what people should do? Well, there's not a definite blueprint. The, the key is find the opportunity and then learn where to put your money and hopefully get some leverage mm -hmm. with that money. So mm -hmm. as I said, in my early career, the housing market worked very well for me. Even at 7% mortgage rates, I was able to leverage quite a bit of money and make money just through the housing as an extra source of income. 
then after that, uh, you know, I'm not the entrepreneur. I'm more of a manager. So uh, sure. I enjoyed the stocks. You know, I, I got into that when I was relatively young and, and you learn to buy and sell. But yeah, expose yourself to s some stocks and learn how that system works. Okay. Now, did you buy individual stocks or did you buy an index fund? Or No, I was buying individual stocks because at the time electronics were just getting exciting. Sure. And so I could follow up and down and, and buy, you know, buy in and, and maybe a year or two later, you know, if it was down, sell that and buy something else or buy it back again when it went back up. Right. Uh, as you talk about your finances over the years, <laughs> the different ways that you've earned money, was that always a big focus? Did you always know, I want to earn a certain amount was that a motivating factor or was it mostly that you were just following enjoying these yourself. opportunities yeah. and the money followed yeah it was just the opportunities and money followed in fact uh, after i lightened up on my attorney job uh, i worked with uh, uh, the local museum in the town that was fifteen thousand people but they were trying to raise money to build a new museum and so they put me on the board and so six years later they're still trying to raise money for this new museum and and I'm, i don't even live in this town i'm a neighboring town and so they said, well, we're going to make you president. I said, well, if you make me president, then we're going to have to break ground in a year. So they did. Uh, the immediate thing, I fired the, <laughs> the former fundraiser, hired a new one. And one year later, we broke ground. And a year later, the building was built. Wow. You know, four million bucks worth, which is relatively small. But still, it was a great, great adventure uh, to do that and work with other people. We had to go brief, you know different people to raise that kind of funding. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I will say I do definitely relate because when I quit my job as well to do YouTube, it was the one thing I told myself that I would try to do if money was no question. And it's, you know, it's that it's that stereotypical question. It's like, if, if money was no object, what would you do? Yes. And it, it, if I had to answer that question, it was, I just like to make YouTube videos. I, I, I love creating content and and entertaining people and educating people and talking about things I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. And the one time that I made the decision to prioritize the passion over the money is when money followed. Yes. So I can definitely relate to that. And I can absolutely relate too because I've loved magic ever since I was a kid. <laughs> it's been something I've been super passionate about and I had this dream since I was a kid to do a magic show in Las Vegas. Well, I think that's it. You have to have the desire and if you, and you don't want necessarily to become a workaholic. I actually uh, have given lectures to university students on chess and business. And uh, what I do, I compare the creative and analytical aspects of chess with the creative and analytical aspects of business. For example, an analytical chess player would be Anatoly Karpov, a 15-year world champion. And I compared him with Tom Watson because I'd worked with Tom Watson. And he was very analytical in IBM and getting that to build up. Uh, for creativity, I looked at Bobby Fischer, the only American uh, world champion at chess, because he was very creative. And then I compared him a little bit with, with uh, Steve Jobs, sure. because he was very creative. But in this same time, when I think of Steve Jobs, you know, he was such a workaholic, and you know, he passed at 57 years. So you need to enjoy what you're doing. I mean, it's great to have the, that work ethic, but take time out to enjoy a little bit of life. 100%. Absolutely. And, and, and speaking of chess, I love your uh, analogy with chess because one of the guys I met was through you. He was, you were, you were his consultant, uh, which is, his name was Timur Gureyev. He holds the Guinness the Book of World Records for blindfold chess master. since 2016. Okay, so let me explain exactly what that means. This guy is on a treadmill, right? <laughs> <laughs> on a tread, tread bike, is it? Yeah. yeah. So I see this at UNLV, by the way, at a university in Las Vegas. <laughs> and I see this event live. I see this guy just biking. He has a blindfold on, right? Yes. And I see around, there's this massive room with 50 tables all around the perimeter. 48 tables. 48, okay. And this guy, table by table, goes around <laughs> and says, all right, 
knight to e4 or whatever the move is, yes. right? And then he goes to the next table and the next table and the next table. And in order to get the beginner's world record, you have to beat 80% of your opponent uh, opponents and you can't peek. You can't see where your chess pieces are, nor where the other 48 are. It's amazing. It's incredible. Wow, and I saw him do this, and this was the guy you consulted with. So that's why chess has played such a big role in your life, and you've equated a lot of the strategies and business with this. Well, so. I actually gave back because I teach beginners, and I created a school in Kansas. And uh, one of our guests at the school was Anatoly Karpov, and so he said we could use his name. And then, like, a few years later, he invited... Uh, Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, the former president yeah, of Russia, sure. to this little town in Kansas of 3,000 people. Uh, and so Mikhail Gorbachev was the second uh, head of state to be there in 2009, and the first head of state was 1976, the king of Sweden, because the town is known as Little Sweden, USA, Lindsborg, right. Lindsborg Kansas. Jeez. That is fascinating. See, <laughs> Mark has so many incredible stories. Oh, it doesn't end. It keeps going. <laughs> so many. So but, many. But with so that said, I think we've got to go level four. to level four. I don't even know what we're doing at level four, but. All right, level four. Now you can feel a little bit of the steam now. <laughs> okay, we're laughing because for the viewer at home, how? if you can't tell how hot this is, it is incredibly how? hot. And Mark is just. Mark doesn't look like he's like sweating. He's no, I'm sweating a little bit, but. But it feels comfortable. Ooh, based on Mark's <laughs> reaction, it seems like this is nothing, but oh, this is some serious heat. In fact, we usually, for this show, edit together a compilation of some of the intense moments, and it usually looks something like this. Let me do my, uh, my quick reenaction of it, which will be easy because I'm genuinely feeling it. <laughs> usually it goes, oh, it's so hot. Oh, and then it cuts to another one of us. Ooh, and then we take a water bottle and pour it over our heads. Oh, just hit the light. <laughs> Pour water over our head and we're jumping. But Mark is just like, oh, no big deal. How are you feeling right now? Oh, I feel great. Yeah, I, I think it's very healthy. And I believe in uh, nutrition, you know, so I, I try to work towards that and, and try to stay healthy. I mean, if you can, you know, but I want to enjoy life as well. So yes. I'd say I'm telling you, maybe 80% really good at being a good yes. nutritional eater. Right. <laughs> now, you're enjoying life now. You're traveling around the world. I'd love to dive more into that. But has enjoying life been part of your philosophy throughout your entire career, even as you were working as an attorney at the Pentagon, a CFO, doing all these things, did you always make time to enjoy life or were there seasons of your life where you didn't have that in perspective? No, I always had a little time out to enjoy because I believe in working hard and, and in a manner of speaking, partying hard, not too hard, but sure. still enjoying the life and seeing different places, seeing different people uh, and learning as much as you can because you learn from every experience that you encounter. Yes. And, uh, and of course, like I say, all of that contributes, you know, uh, in a manner of speaking, you know, I, I get very, uh, strong on efficiencies. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, you know, part of that is getting your job, doing the, whatever you do, investing and, and uh, for example, I believe in my belief in cars, I don't like to keep a car for 10 years, sure. although that might be the, the best investment, but I like reliability. And so I trade every two years that, you know, usually I put on 40 or 50,000 miles. And, in uh, two years. <laughs> That's insane. And that works for me. Uh, when I started out just as a, uh, you know, 22, 23 years old, whatever, uh, my first car was a little Corvette, and I was able to keep it for two years, trade it, 
and buy a new one for only about 500 bucks a difference. That's, That's interesting. Incredible. So you're optimizing for reliability. Yes, there you go. You're thinking about probably the value of your own time. And so Absolutely. That seems like an interesting lesson too, is we can optimize as far as what is the optimal thing to do from a financial perspective. Absolutely. But then there's also, okay, what how do I want happy? to optimize right, for what makes me happy, for what works for my life and my lifestyle. Right. Now, so. Mark, if you could go back to the 18-year-old Mark Cobb, would you tell yourself anything to do anything different or... Well, as 18 years old, I, I just wanted to get the education, sure. and I wanted to get it as, quote, as cheap as I could. I wanted to be efficient. I really wanted to get out into the workforce yes. and make my own money because I had that feeling of independence at 18. Right. And so if I didn't make it to the Air Force Academy, and I applied a day late and a dollar short, <laughs> but I was accepted like in April of my senior year. Uh, but if I had not been accepted, I would have gone probably to Wichita State University. They gave me a full uh, semester of free yeah. credits. And I could have finished in three and a half years easily. So, so you would encourage yourself to stick to education and to enjoy life? Uh, education or a skill that you think is going to add value to your life. And I knew that I, as long as I could add some value, because I didn't know a whole lot, sure. <laughs> sure. it would work. Uh, well, are, are you ready to go to level five? And then we'll talk about some of your investments out there. No, oh, sure. We finish sure, up. absolutely. Cool Let's go to level five. Level and five. Uh, here, here in go. this level, Mark, you can talk about anything you want. <laughs> Promote anything you want. Your book. I know you are in the process of writing a book right now, <laughs> and you published a book before called Uncommon Sense. Yes, which is a fascinating book about sense this that are uncommon. I looked it up just recently, and somebody has it on the uh, on uh, what uh, Amazon for sure. twenty five dollars. Nice. You know, which uh, well, maybe what, I sh are, maybe I should you know put it on Amazon myself at this point. What are some of the cliff notes and, and summaries and takeaways from that book? Well, that was an anecdotal book, uh, basically sharing some of the issues and successes that I had uh, throughout my life. And uh, so it was anecdotal. And, of course, I've had several people say, oh, I like this particular one. It, it inspired me to, to get back with my wife or something like that. That's happened. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy that people can enjoy the anecdotes. Uh, I tell the story about when I was in the sixth grade and the teacher put up a backward R and that was the yaw for the Russian alphabet. Yes. And that inspired me to look more into the, quote, at that time, the Soviet Union. Right. And speaking of anecdotes, we have many more anecdotes, I'm <laughs> sure, to come in our cool down conversation. So definitely stick around. We'll be talking more with Mark, hearing about his many global adventures. Okay, welcome to the cool down conversation. And to kick things off here, this is a two-part question here, but I'd love to learn more about when you mentioned that you were motivated as a kid to buy something for your grandma. I would love to hear more about that story. And then also, I think it would be really interesting to learn about what you've learned from the generations above you, from your parents and from your grandparents. Well, when I was buying this gift from my grandmother, it was a, a vase, but I was only like seven years old. And so I'm going to the local store where I could walk to and I'm looking at it, trying to find a gift for a birthday gift. And I see this vase. And of course, the whoever the attendant at the store was, you know, this little kid buying a vase, you know, what, does he have that much money? You know, because, you know, I'm making what nickel or dime <laughs> a week or whatever. And this vase was like, you know, six or seven dollars, you know. So, yeah, I got a funny look. But uh, no, I was able to buy it and uh, give it as a gift and. Yeah, it still left a, a you know a pleasant memory. It's one of those things you just don't forget because it, it had so much meaning right. uh, 
That's wonderful. That. That's so sweet. <laughs> was her reaction really wonderful? Do you remember the moment of giving it to her? Well, of course. Yeah, but she was, you know, obviously all smiles and oh my goodness, you know, yes. and what a surprise, you know, that. <laughs> yes, that is so thoughtful of, of, uh, of, of yeah. little kid, little kid Mark. Yes. So what have you learned from your parents and your grandparents from those different generations? Key, I think there's so much wisdom that could be. Yeah, the key I learned in. was money management. Money management, I mean, it's not about, I mean, I never looked to be making money, but whatever money I made, I did my best to manage it well. So I think money management is very key, and uh, you can be very happy if you manage money correctly. Uh, there's a couple of Hollywood celebrities that, you know, are, are in bankruptcy mode. They make all this money, they spend it, they have no idea how to manage their money, and they probably have a very poor money manager to boot. And uh, so, yeah, they can't, they can't enjoy life, they're stressed out, they don't have money, and now they're getting older, they can't even do anything. So money management I learned, and my parents, uh, my father retired, and then he ran a 100-unit apartment complex, and they managed that, and uh, always had enough reserves to put on new roofs, to, to buy new refrigerators, to buy new washers, everything for all the apartments, to keep them always up to snuff. And uh, they're still in existence today, and that's like 50 years later, and they're still very well-maintained, but they ran the operation for 20 years and uh, set up that management operation to make sure reserves were there and money wasn't spent foolishly. So Mark, before we talk about investments and some of your creative investment strategies, which uh, we could talk about because you have some really cool things that before I had met Mark, I never even heard of, uh, like some of the uh, trusts that you've done with universities and right. things like that, which I'm, I'm really fascinated by. But one of the lessons that you've actually kind of imparted on me that I really resonated with and kind of practiced throughout my life, even before I knew you, was uh, never take anything personally was one of the things, uh, takeaways from, from your book, actually. Yes. And I, I've noticed that you've kind of been like that, too. That there's nothing that ever phases you. There's nothing that upsets you. There's almost nothing anyone could ever say that makes you angry or sad. And I think that's a, such a key lesson in life. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, the, uh, the book, The Four Agreements by uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, and uh, his four principles, I, I actually give this to, uh, again, either university students or even high school graduating students. I incorporate these philosophies in, in there. And the first one is be impeccable with your word. Now, these are guidelines, of course, but, you know, nobody is ever perfectly clear in what they say. There's always an ambiguity or a generalization. Right. So be impeccable with your word. Try that and, and life is going to be better. The second thing is don't take anything personally. And that's extremely hard, you know, because a lot of people have big chips on their shoulders. and Something that makes them something. upset or, yeah. or, yeah, triggers mm -hmm. them, sure. And then the third thing is don't make any assumptions. And we all make assumptions, of course, but the idea is if you ask the correct more questions, you'll make fewer assumptions and you won't have as many disappointments. And the last one is just do the best you can. <laughs> so I love yeah. it. I, I think that it does make for a very happy way of living. Uh, I've been very content. Uh, I had to actually use that. I was in San Francisco and I parked a car in a brand new park location that was relatively newly opened. And we went to take a picture of the skyline of San Francisco, and you had to walk behind some bushes or along the path of some bushes. And I came back to the car, and someone had broken the rear, view, the rear passenger window and grabbed my overnight bag out of the car. Oh and, you know, you just wanted to punch somebody or punch a wall or do something. And so I talked to myself for about 10 minutes saying, I will not take this personally. <laughs> you know, but I had some family rings in there because I didn't wear the jewelry. It was in my mm -hmm. overnight bag. 
And uh, I never got them back, of course. But that's what was so personal. And I said, do not take it personal. Do not take it personal. And is that something you've practiced your whole life? Or is that something you've kind of learned when you read that I've, book? I've or? learned that uh, probably in the last 20, 30 years. Yes. And it seems like it's really tested in the difficult times. Because it's easy for somebody to say these things. But it's when there's something difficult that happens. And you're able to really talk to yourself in that moment. That shows that you really walk the walk. <laughs> Because it's easy just to say, don't take things personally. But if somebody actually breaks into your car and takes family <laughs> rings that are precious to you, and in that moment, you really are telling yourself, okay, don't take this personally, as hard as it is and as emotional as you're feeling in that moment, I feel like that's what really separates the people who are truly walking the walk. Well, that, and you have to accept it, you know, and get on with your life. And entrepreneurs, they have to accept failure. Yeah, especially I mean, in the investment world where you have to take a loss sometimes, yes. and that's fine. That's an opportunity lost, but you move on and... You don't take it personally. You don't let it slow you down. And I feel like Jen, knowing Jen for at least 10 years now, she's kind of like the epitome of just a person I don't think I've ever seen upset or angry. <laughs> she does seem very I've, calm. I've, I'm asked, I've asked Dylan. I was like, does she ever get sad or upset <laughs> or angry? He's like, yeah. But she's like still smiling and still <laughs> laughing and telling me to do it. I don't understand how that works. I remember Dylan asked me that same thing on one of our first dates. And of course, I'm human. Of course, I get sad. Of course, I get upset. But I don't I believe do that. <laughs> like, I know you're human part, but... That I've never seen you sad <laughs> or upset. I will say, I think my general baseline is that I'm a relatively happy, optimistic person. Yes. But of course, like any other human being, there will be challenges, there will be struggles. Uh, but overall, I feel like generally if you do your best to live your life in a happy way, I think... I'm just watching Dylan right now because he just turned the camera to, <laughs> to show his reaction. I just felt like my reaction might be worth recording. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. For sure. And for context, for any viewers who don't know, uh, Dylan and I have been dating. We've been together for almost seven years now. So Dylan Dylan knows. But I think I think overall your your perspective on things just affects your life so much. I mean, your perception is the reality of your life. So it's like uh, Mark is saying, I think if you don't take things personally and you do your best to have an optimistic mindset, I feel like your life will be that much happier. Right. And of course, it's not always easy and I'm not perfect at it by any means, but I think the lessons that Mark <laughs> is sharing are, are super valuable. Well, I love some of these sayings. I, and one of my favorite one is, you know, uh, it's not the love of power but the power of love, uh, you know, I think that's a fascinating way to express uh, your feelings to somebody. And, uh, you know, it's about giving because if you're giving, then somehow that comes right back to you. And, and, and I've experienced that in this. The, I've spent like the last 12 or so years working with elementary, middle and high school kids in chess. And we actually created a chess letter in high school for the chess uh, players. And, and that high school team eventually won the state championship in chess from a very small high school, which, you know, it just gives you that huge satisfaction. It's like a parent and a child almost when the child, you know, is making good progress. Oh, of it's course, great. you're so proud of them. <laughs> yes. But it's yeah. all about giving. And, and speaking of giving, Mark, uh, one of your investments that you've actually introduced me to is the Charitable Investment Trusts, right? Yes, uh, the Charitable Remainder Unit Trust. Okay, so and can you kind of explain? It's called C-R-U-T, a CRUT. CRUT, okay. And I think you can even start it at 30 years of age. 
But this is where you take a lump sum of money, like $100,000. Okay. Okay. And you, for me, I said, I want to give it to this university. My parents uh, went to the local college. And so I said, I want to establish a fund uh, for this university for scholarship. And I believe in education because education <laughs> kind of got me to where I am. So I want to give back to education. So I say, okay, we will give this $100,000 to the university. But... Uh, it's done as a charitable remainder unit trust, which means it gets to be held by an investment management firm. And because it's a charitable contribution, you also get a big tax deduction for that $100,000 that you're donating. And at the same time, it's for life that you get a return of 6% on whatever that 100000 makes as the principal grows with the investment firm. Now, is that guaranteed? That 6%? 6% is guaranteed if it goes up or down. If it goes down to zero, then obviously you get zero money. Got it. And what do those um, uh, charities sort of invest the money into? Do you know? No, the investment firm, they invest like any other stock portfolio firm does. Right. Uh, it's in stocks and bonds. Stocks and bonds, okay. Primarily. Okay. Uh, but the nice thing is you start with $100,000, you know, if... You've gone through the uh, stock market in a 10-year time frame. It usually makes a, a plus. <laughs> sure. And, and there have been many instances where that 100000 goes easily to $200,000 in the 10 or 20 years that a person continues to live. And then when that person dies, that 200000 principal goes to the university as a scholarship for, for children, students to uh, attend. Meanwhile, you get 6% of that principal. So when it's at 200000 for example, instead of making 6000 a year, you're making 12000 a year. And, and you're not doing anything except trying to leave some money for the college when you pass. That's great. And actually, that's a great example of what you were just talking about. If you give, you get back. It really is a win-win <laughs> in practice. Oh, I mean, you're giving key. and you're also... That is a key. I've always said, look for the win-win solution. You know, and that applies not only to investments, <laughs> but to life, to <laughs> geography, to the world. Look for the win-win solution. There's nothing wrong with two people winning. Right. Definitely. That's, that's why I love YouTube's business model is because it's free for the viewers. It's, yes. It's free Absolutely. for everyone. Everyone is winning. There's, the knowledge there's no, is... Yes. Okay. People are learning. Invaluable. You get to create content. You get to get paid by the ads, but no one's really paying you. The people watching don't pay you. And those really business models are the best. Absolutely. No. Now, who would you recommend those CRUTs or those charitable remainder unit trusts for? Is it of a particular age group or um, where does it sort of sit on, on the like diversification ladder or is it for older? Uh, no, typically? I'm not the expert in it. But I, as I said, I think you can do it at age 30 or okay. uh, time frame for life. Okay. Uh, so you have to look at and obviously get with an accountant that right. you know, knows what they're doing. Uh, but yes, I think you can start at a younger age, but obviously you can do it at 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, whenever you want, mm -hmm. uh, just make a contribution to somebody. I have another contribution I made to my law school, you know, the same way. And, uh, it, it's fun to see. And then you get the return from people that are, right. are getting the scholarships. Uh, early on, I actually, with one company, I developed a scholarship program as a benefit for the insurance uh, members of the company so that, uh, they could give out scholarships to, to youth. And so right now, they, I looked recently, and they have a $1.5 million endowment just for scholarships uh, to give to their memberships, yeah. their students that That's apply. so fascinating, because I'd always wonder where some of the scholarship money would come from. Mm. 
Like, who gets to pay for some of these scholarships? I went to UNLV on a Millennium Scholarship. I'm sure it was different. It was funded differently. But so it is funded sometimes from private individuals like yourself, where you give the money and then you kind of let them keep it at the end. Yeah. Um, And one of the things we talked about recently was your investments into land. So you you think that land is also a pretty valuable investment. Well, again, it's just to me a common sense or uncommon sense, you know, there's only so much land in this world. Right. And uh, the OG as, Bitcoin. As long as you're going <laughs> 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 to go back to the metaverse and buy your new <laughs> land, <laughs> we'll create more land. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Speaking but of But if Bitcoin. you're talking about <laughs> physical land, <laughs> there's only so much of it. That's right. And, uh, you know, as long as you buy at the right time at the right place it's going to appreciate now obviously you can buy it in the middle of the desert and it will never appreciate but if you buy it and you're you're local and i like warren buffett's idea you know warren buffett says i only buy companies that i know are being managed well i know what i'm buying i look into it and same way with land you've got to know where you're buying what you're buying what the expectations are for development and then that makes a good investment. Or you have to look at the capital return. The only thing I don't like about buying land, though, is that it's a de- not a depreciating asset, but it's a, it's a liability until you go to sell. So it's not everyone's going to have the income to support just having it on their on their balance sheet, since you're going to have to pay property taxes on it and all sorts of things. So for the time being, as you hold it, it's actually draining money until you go to sell. And that could take 20, 30 years. So. Well, it depends on if the land is producing something or not. That's true. Or if the land already has something on it that's producing income. Right. Well, well you have a lot of experience with that because you grew up in Kansas. I so grew you up actually on the farmland. <laughs> you own a ton of farmland. And, uh, and you've been able to monetize it by selling corn and wheat yes. and beans. Soybeans. Soy right. Yeah, that's so, so fascinating. that does pay. And there is a bonus at the end of the day uh, for that. And the land keeps increasing in value. Now, what if it's someone like me who doesn't know anything about farming? Would I be able to outsource the process of managing the land to someone else? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, it can be done. Again, it's part of the networking process. I met some people that were in the health industry, and they were buying land in Kansas. Uh, You know, it happens all the time. But it it is a, a, a diversified market there. You have to know a little bit more. Sure. And see if it's going to produce what you need to make the cash. Cash flow is important. I think cash flow, money management is one element, but cash flow is the other element. Sure. You know, you've got to make sure that the cash is flowing to pay those taxes. People forget about taxes. You've got property taxes, you know, federal taxes, state taxes, but not here in Nevada, but every place else. Sales tax, you know. That's interesting. And because you've had experience, you grew up on a farm, so you've experience with land as it relates to farming. You have experience moving around when you were with the Air Force and you would buy properties, residential properties, and then you spoke about how you also invested in commercial real estate and made a profit that way. So with all of your different experience with land and real estate, what have you learned about the different types of real estate or land investments that people can make and what advice might you give or what thoughts do you have on that for well, people in, interested? Well, in, in essence, I go back to Warren Buffett because I think you know, his form of investment, he's, he's managed, he knows how to look at these companies that are managed properly and then basically is into the stock market business. And that's probably the easiest with the least amount of distractions. <laughs> uh, I mean, you still have a lot of paperwork, but still, uh, it's, uh, uh, to me, easier to grasp. Uh, but you have to 
have the ability to look at financial statements and understand those details, but you don't have to worry about like a, if a house, if you're renting it, and then you have to worry about repairs, you have to worry about new, new people coming in, new people going out. Uh, land is, like you said, the same way. Someone's got to farm it, someone's got to manage it, someone's got to pay the property taxes. Uh, but on stocks, yeah, you just get one account, and then that seems to, they can do most everything for you. The only experience I have with land is the land before time. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> Have you ever seen it? The little oh, dinosaurs? Oh, man. The land. Oh, vaguely. Vaguely. <laughs> vaguely I okay. like I should have seen it. I'm sure Dylan oh, man. Good talk. Good talk. <laughs> we were talking a little bit about money and happiness, and uh, I attended one of Warren Buffett's annual meetings, and it was fascinating because at the annual meeting, he went through all the financial stuff, but one of the questions asked by the audience was, well, Warren, and at this time, you know, he's 92 now, but I think he was around 88 or so then. And they said, Warren, you know, you eat a hamburger and a cherry Coke for lunch almost every day. That's not very healthy, I and mean, we want you to live longer. Why, you know, why don't you do a more healthy lunch? And Warren says, well, you know, eating that hamburger and cherry Coke makes me happy, and I think being happy, I'll live longer. So it's not just about money. It's about being happy, too. And if we're going to talk about investments, you know, everybody has their favorite investment book. And I still agree that, you know, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham is still one of the best. Right. I've, I've read that and enjoy but, it the but most. It, but it's fascinating, Mark, because you're one of the only friends I have that's sort of been able to keep up with sort of the new innovations and technologies of, of today's world. Like, yeah, thanks you, to you. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we, many years, well, you first got involved in crypto in 2014 or yes. so. Yes, uh-huh. And... Uh, and so we got into that discussion about crypto and all of a sudden I had to, you know, find out what this new new world is about. And so we made some crypto investments. Sure, and then we started talking about well. the, the Fed and the central <laughs> bank and then I kind of told uh, Mark about all the stories and and you're like, yeah, this, this sounds like this Bitcoin thing. This sounds really great. And then you did a ton of research and you're like, uh, yeah, let's let's invest. And then we set up an account. We actually opened a bank account together, yes. a joint bank account where we put Mark's money. We put, I think, $10,000 in. Good networking. Yep. And then we and then I managed the account for Mark and he bought a bunch of Ethereum, a bunch of uh, like one Bitcoin, actually, for, I think, tw- 10. One Bitcoin, three yeah. Ethereum and three yes. Bitcoin cash. Yeah, which was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what is your perspective on crypto, on the metaverse, on technology of today and of the future? What are your thoughts? Well, I think the metaverse has a lot of potential. I have a very good friend in Tbilisi in the country of Georgia, the capital of Georgia, which is in between Turkey and Russia. And uh, he's very involved in the metaverse. Uh, they're actually selling you know, the land and getting advertisements formulated and everything. Uh, they have a dozen people that are doing a fabulous job of it. So when I go to Tbilisi, which I do about once or twice a year, I get with them as well and get the latest updates on what they're doing with, with their metaverse. Uh, the crypto, obviously these governments, you know, the banking industry is not too happy with crypto uh, and is struggling to break that little bit of barrier again. But I, I think uh, because it's so efficient, and and I uh, I have to agree. You know, the banking industry is a lot of middle people making a lot of money. So I'm I'm very pro crypto, but I think the governments are going to be very strongly against it. So it's a very much of a struggle to have a lot of confidence on when it's going to really work. I mean, obviously El Salvador uses it as a national currency, and I was just there in May, and that was a fun fun. Did visit. you see any any sort of uh crypto footprints there did you see restaurants accepting it not really not really okay but uh they were still pretty much using the dollar sure okay 
It's fascinating. So, um, no, I think that's uh, fascinating. Uh, then you get into the other areas of, of the uh, fungible <laughs> NFTs. <laughs> NFTs. Yeah, th that that gets a little, maybe a little shakier. So uh, you draw the line in NFTs, like metaverse, well, digital I, land, the way I NFTs. Diversity. <laughs> no, stop is right here. When we were, I was a treasurer of the insurance company. You know, I said, look, we can afford ten percent. Big risk. Yes, and and we did. You know, and and but the insurance regulators constantly were saying, no, no, you can't do that. That's risking the the members' money. You know, and and it really wasn't. They just didn't understand you know, how to look at construction and, and investments. But we didn't ever do more than 10%, but 10% was a good number. And I use that personally as an idea. You know, you can take 10%. Uh, I did some venture capital and it failed. <laughs> yeah. It was a great product, but it just no, never I, took I, off. I remember you talked to me about this when you put $50,000 yeah, yes. into, uh, can't believe it's, or what was it called? Yes. Nuts. Don't go nuts. Don't basically. go nuts. That's right. And, and uh, uh, for people that were allergic to nut have nut allergies. And this was, a, it a was like a, a chocolate bar. Nutella spread product. And it yeah. was so good and it had no nuts in it, Right. but it, w it was so good. And I don't know what happened to it, but you put in $50,000 yeah. and it, it didn't materialize. It got diluted. But it does <laughs> seem like the strategy of a lot of VCs, these venture capital firms, is that they know that a majority of their investments sure. are going to go to zero. Yeah, zero, yeah. But and some of them so are going to work. If, right, if they just get that unicorn, if they end up investing in something that becomes Uber or sure. Airbnb, then it's, it's all worth it. And that's one thing I love about the chess analogy. You know, Benjamin Franklin, way back, in the day mm -hmm. said that chess teaches you all the life habits and skills that you need in life. And I totally agree. And, and one of the nice things when I talk to students and stuff is say, you know, especially if they're in the chess world, well, you know, I lost a game the first time they lost, they cry and everything. I said, wait a sec, you know, the grand master has lost more games than you'll ever lose. And that's it. You learn from your loss. Uh, you, hopefully you learn from your losses and you'll be a grand master someday. And when you talk about learning from losses, learning from failures, are there any notable failures in your life, whether it's this one in venture capital with the Nutella spread or something else that you really learned a lot from? And looking back in retrospect, you think about that failure and you think about the, the lesson that you were able to take <laughs> forward from it? Yeah, well, that, I hated to lose that venture capital. And, and uh, the lesson is just, you know, read the fine print better and try and stop the loss before it gets that big. Uh, because when you get bigger investors, that dilutes your shares. And then when obviously it comes crashing down, they get paid off before you get paid off. So you have to know where your money level is at in that investment scheme. And uh, yeah. so you, you learn those lessons. You have to know where you where, when to cut your losses. The bigger lesson is again, just still try to do good management with your money. If you can learn those lessons, uh, that's fascinating. So you keep roughly 10% of your portfolio to risky investments yes. like the crypto, like the private equity, which is the right. same roughly as my ratio as well, 10%, no more than 10%. The rest, the 90% stocks, <laughs> real estate, the traditional stuff, maybe some bonds, but the risky stuff, yeah, that could go to the moon or it could completely <laughs> fail. But 10%, I would agree, is a really, really good number. You travel the world, yes. Mark. So can you tell us more about that experience? Have you always loved to travel? Actually, I've enjoyed traveling. I've been to over 100 countries and I uh, love the people and love the cultures. Uh, I got a 10-year visa for China, which I was able to use it in 2018 and 2019, but I haven't used it for the last two years because of COVID. 
but the people there are wonderful to visit with. Uh, I found the people around the world are wonderful. You have to be careful about the governments. <laughs> uh, they can be a little sticky at times. And even when I was in Moscow for two years, the people were wonderful people. And we got to, the only people we could interact with at the time were the artists because they allowed them to come to receptions, but they wouldn't allow you to mix with the other Russian people. And uh, because all foreigners were enemies of the country when I was there. In this was the Cold War era. In the 1980s. And uh, so we could only interact basically with all the other foreigners that were there, the Argentines, the Indian, India people, Mexico, you know, Brazil, whatever. And so it was a great interaction with, with the rest of the world. Uh, but uh, when we, we could only interact very carefully with the uh, Russians. Uh, I happened to work with the, because uh, uh, I was with the Air Force, and I had a, 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 a little <laughs> hobby of being into the space area. And at the time, the United States would not allow the French quote, astronauts, cosmonauts, to be a part of the astronaut program in the United States. It was Jean-Luc Baudry and uh, uh, Patrick Creighton. And so they ended up being cosmonauts in Moscow. But in Moscow, they could only go to class with the Russian cosmonauts. They could not play tennis. They could not eat with them. They could not study with them. They could not do anything else. So every weekend, they come into Moscow from Star City. And I was very good friends with the French attaché. And so we would have them either at my apartment or his apartment every weekend. And so finally it came to my birthday, so we had it at my apartment. So I cooked hamburgers and they brought French champagne. <laughs> That's fun. There but he go. got to know all the cosmonauts. And then later they actually invited us to the Star City and visited all the Russian cosmonauts as well. So you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> Mark, can you tell us the secret to traveling the world and booking tickets and flights as cheaply as you do. Because this is something Mark and I talk about, where he's like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna go to uh, Brazil. And the way that you strategize how to book those flights is so fascinating to me, because you won't book necessarily a direct flight. Sometimes you'll book a flight to sort of uh, an intermediary country, and then you'll go from there. Yes. How do you kind of well, look at that? So you go to Google Flights. It depends on how I'm traveling. If I'm traveling with my wife, it's probably going to be you know, sure, sure, sure. No, 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 no. You travel extremely light. I light. travel for adventure yes. with my other friends, and my wife is not the adventure woman. She prefers, you know, to take a nice organized trip once a year, and then I'm happy to take care of the cats at the house, and uh, you go do the adventure with your friends. I'll stay home. So my adventure is like skydiving, mountain climbing, swimming, uh you know, and, hot air ballooning. And, and Mark, by the way, travels with one backpack. So you just bring a carry-on. Yes. There's no bags with you. Right. You just bring one backpack to everywhere you go. Yes. And it, it's fascinating. So, so first, can you kind of just explain how you book the Google flights? Like, what's the okay. route? So my route normally is I maybe start with Google just to get an idea of where some cheaper flights might be in the world. And uh, like when I was going to South Africa, well, maybe I'd go through Dublin if it was a cheap flight there that I could make a connection. Uh, but as it turned out, uh, I was able to get a flight uh, direct to Johannesburg. And then the return flight, though, it was very expensive to go the same airline. So I just made a separate ticket one way, and I went on Kenya Air Airways. So my flight from Johannesburg went to Nairobi, to New York, and then I had a separate ticket from New York to Las Vegas because it was also cheaper. And that's how I got here from uh, Johannesburg. So, so in a nutshell, Mark's strategy is sort of instead of booking a round trip like I would do, like if I want to go to, I don't know, Russia or something, I would book a round trip and then I would go from Vegas to New York or to L.A. and then to Moscow and then to my city, right? 
But the way that Mark would do it is he would book a one-way flight and see these, he would fragment his trip, which would sometimes become a lot cheaper. But the risk with what you're doing, Mark, is that if your connecting flight misses, then you can't really get on, is that right? But that's true, but before COVID hit, I had a round the world trip planned. They were all one-way tickets. So I was starting in Washington, D.C., and it was a nonstop to Beijing. And I was visiting my friends in, in China, in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And then I was flying from Hong Kong one way to Munich, which was only $300. And I was visiting my friends in Berlin and Hamburg. And then I was flying from Munich to New York, which was only a couple of hundred dollars at the time. And then from New York back to Kansas for a couple of hundred. It was less than $1,000 around, around the world. Now, wow. when you made these connecting flights, like Andre was saying, the risk is that you miss the flight. But are you saying you make the connecting flight long enough for yes. a proper visit? Well, so you can if I'm really visiting stay. my friends, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. I spend a, two or three days in Germany, two or three days in China, you know. Right. And, uh, so you make it part of the trip itself part of the as trip opposed itself to just a to make connection. Right. Well, and, wait. Uh, so, so, so that's a secret right there, too. How, how did you make all of these connections? And because uh, everywhere you travel, you, you don't really stay at hotels. It's a rare exception that you do. Yeah, I do. Uh, but mostly you stay with your foreign exchange students and, and your friends. Well, that's another thing. Talk about, you know, getting ideas and giving. I had uh, five different exchange students for one year in high school at five different years. And it's been fun to follow them. One now works with McKinsey Consultants. You know, that's big, big consulting Absolutely. worldwide. And he's doing quite well, needless to say. And uh, he's in Hamburg. And I have another one that worked with Amazon in Berlin. And then I have another one that's uh, uh, a professor of economics and Chinese language in Vladivostok, Russia. <laughs> but he's doing well as a Russian citizen. We don't get to visit as much, obviously, sure, because sure. of the politics. And then I have an, another exchange student in Baghdad that's an international lawyer. He actually did his master's of law degree at the University of Pittsburgh on a scholarship. But I haven't quite got enough courage to visit him in Baghdad. I'm not sure it would be good for me or him. So I saw him when he was in Pittsburgh, but not since. And then I have another exchange student in Tbilisi, Georgia. That's one of the top criminal lawyers there. Wow. So now when I visit Georgia, I know all the lawyers. You know, we share ideas and discuss some, you know, sure. some cases and get some ideas. So you're able to stay with friends often when you travel around the world. <laughs> you're true. able to find flights that are reasonably priced because you have this strategy of yes. looking for those connections. Do you have any other money-saving tips for people who want to travel, let's say, on a budget? Well, I guess, you know, in a manner of speaking, if you really want to travel the world, make friends around the world. Uh, because I have very good friends from pilot training days you know, that live in Denmark and France. So we used to go visit Cannes, France with my, because they had a house there, you know, it was fabulous. And uh, then I've got author friends I visit. You know, I've got my exchange student friends I visit. (laughs) I've got my lawyer. Well, in fact, I'm leaving here. And so next week I'm going to be in Berlin and Hamburg to visit my two exchange students there because I haven't seen them for three or four years because of COVID. And then after that, I'm going to go to Sao Paulo, and I have a lawyer friend there that he was just up here in May in the U.S., and we actually drove from Miami all the way to Portland, Maine, and stopped at Airbnbs and hotels for two weeks. So I'm visiting with him in in Brazil, then we're going to fly to Mendoza, Argentina (laughs) for a week, and then I'm flying to Ushuaia, the most southern point on the South American continent as far as the city goes, and then taking an expedition, 16-day expedition to Antarctica. This is Mark every time I see, every time he comes to Vegas, 
I'm like, where have you been, Mark? And he'll tell me like 15 different countries that he's been to. And every time he leaves, he'll go to another 20. And it's so <laughs> fascinating because I feel like the lessons I think you've imparted on all of us is uh, don't take anything personally, make a lot of friends, right. uh, do what you love. And, and the friendship is networking. You know, when I went to uh, South Africa, I'd never been to South Africa and I didn't have any friends there, but I had a friend in Warsaw, Poland that wanted to join me. Yeah. And he works with Google and he was like 30 years old. And so, you know, we rented a car, we did the hot air balloon, the whale watching, climbed you know, up the Table Mountain. Fantastic trip for two weeks. That's wonderful. It's so great, too, to have friends around the world because I feel like it makes it such a different experience traveling when you're with somebody who knows the area well. Well, that, too, and you get to share expenses. Like, we had a penthouse apartment that we split the expenses. We had another view of the Atlantic Ocean down on Cape Town, and uh, you know, but we split the expenses, so it was very cheap for us splitting, it, splitting that way. And, and you probably don't fall into tourist traps because <laughs> your friends who can sort of be your guides for the experience sure. will tell you, okay, here's, here's where you can go, here's what you can do. You don't end up uh, going to all the touristy places right. necessarily. I'm thinking of when Dylan and I went on a trip with Magicians Without Borders. Oh, wow. And yeah, so nice. the Yale Magic Society, which is a group that I started when I was a student at Yale, we did this joint trip with the Yale Magic Society and Magicians Without Borders. And Magicians Without Borders was founded by Tom and Janet Werner, who are a magician and mime husband-wife duo. So they travel the world, they started this organization performing for people often in really challenging situations all around the world wow. and spreading hope and happiness through magic. And when we went on this trip to India, we were in Mumbai and then we went through a rural area called Gujarat <laughs> and we were traveling to all these small villages and doing magic shows and it was an amazing experience and I think the fact that Tom had been to India and specifically to these areas 20 or 30 times <laughs> made the experience yes. so much more comfortable for us because it was our first time in India it was so nice to be able to, to travel with him and to learn from his experience. And he was able to, to really guide us through that. And, and then, Jen, didn't you tell us you were in a van or in a truck? And as you guys were driving, you yes. were screaming magic. Yes. What, what were okay, you saying? Okay, this is great. <laughs> so this is one of my favorite stories from that trip. We're in a very rural area. And when I say very rural, I mean we had to take a bus to a car. <laughs> it was an adventure to get to this rural area. And we got to the village and we meet this woman who's the liaison and she didn't speak english and we didn't speak her local dialect but we were able to communicate because she was just so warm and so welcoming and wow. she gestures for us to uh, get into her car and she has a sedan there now keep in mind we're in a neighborhood where most people don't have cell phones at this time so most people maybe one in every 15 people had a cell phone uh, a flip phone so in order to get people to come to the show and make them aware <laughs> of the fact that the show was happening we she motions for us to get in the car and a few of us from the group get into the car she takes a microphone and a megaphone and with duct tape <laughs> tapes the megaphone to the roof of the car and then she gets in the car we get in the car we're driving slowly down the dirt roads past people's homes and people are out in their yards, they're flying kites or they're in their houses eating dinner. And she's saying in their local dialect, 
we have magicians. There's a magic show. Magicians <laughs> from the U.S. are here. Come follow us. Wow. And people would leave their homes. They'd leave their yards, whatever they were doing, playing in the yard, having their meal, and they would follow the car. And we must have gotten 80, 90 people wow. to the show that day, Amazing. all from following the car because they heard the message out of the That's megaphone. That's incredible. And I thought, it works. Now we should do that in Las Vegas. Yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> that. <laughs> Imagine going day. on the strip and you're like in a bed. Magic <laughs> show. Come see my show. <laughs> We're on our way to Westgate. Come <laughs> oh my follow gosh. us. <laughs> all roads lead back to the Westgate. <laughs> But it's super to share that magic, you know, with the rest of the world. And, and we do a little bit of that with chess. I sometimes I have a couple of grandmasters I travel with. And we'll take some chess boards and share them. We were in Africa in Tanzania a year ago. Yes. And uh, that was fantastic, uh, sharing some of the classes with the younger kids and giving them some chess boards. Oh, that must be so rewarding. Mark and I were talking just the other night because Mark was here <laughs> at Andre's, Andre and Corey. Oh, our crazy <laughs> Halloween <laughs> party. Oh, my gosh. It was an awesome Halloween party. <laughs> yeah. And so Mark and I were having a conversation about Tanzania specifically right. uh, because uh, I studied Swahili and so have always wanted to travel to Tanzania, climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Absolutely. So Mark, wonderful. you've been to Tanzania and what was it like? Oh, it was beautiful. We, we uh, you know, we started in Dar es Salaam, but we did this during the COVID period. So I was actually in Honolulu at the time and my chess friend calls up and says, I'm going to Tanzania. We're going to do some exhibitions there with chess. You know, please come and join. And said, holy moly. I mean, that's a long way from Honolulu. And so I checked the airfare. And round trip was like $800. And I said, okay, I guess I have to go. Yeah. <laughs> so it was five hours to Seattle. And then it was 15 hours to Doha, another five hours to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Uh, and we spent uh, three weeks there, and it was fabulous. Uh, I did the Serengeti at the uh, National Park there in Tanzania. I went to Lake Victoria, which is the largest lake in Africa. We'd also, my friend actually climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. I just did the first level, and then I did this Serengeti. And yeah. Mark, you were telling me that your friend summited Mount Kilimanjaro in three days. Yes, yes. Which, by the way, is amazing, because usually people take... I would estimate five or six days. I had looked into normally. This I think years it's five days. Normally, going. they want five days. Five yeah. days, and At for least. him to go in three days with the altitude, I can yes. imagine how difficult that is on the human <laughs> body, especially at the very end. Because when you're summiting Mount Kilimanjaro, I had researched this in depth because I really was excited about the possibility, <laughs> and, and hopefully someday we'll still be able to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. But when I was looking into this. In college at the time, as I was studying Swahili, I was thinking it would be really cool to travel to Tanzania, to Kenya, to Uganda, the, the three countries where Swahili is mainly spoken, and go and do magic shows and climb Mount Kilimanjaro. So as I was looking at the logistics of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, <laughs> that final summit, which often happens in the early morning hours, the final route up to actually summit Mount Kilimanjaro is really tough on the body. It's yes. often very cold from what I've heard. And altitude and sickness. The altitude sickness really gets to you. So, mm. oh, so your friend is your friend a serious but mountain he was, climber? He was, you know, again, you mentioned Timur Gareyev. And uh, so I was traveling with him because we were doing the blindfold chess exhibitions there in Africa. And uh, so he was the one that went to the top. But then, you know, he was exhausted. And our next stop was in Dubai. And unfortunately, when he was exhausted, uh, by the time we got to Dubai, they have to take a COVID test at the airport. I tested negative, but he tested positive oh, no, because yeah. his immune yeah. system was probably down from all the altitude sickness and everything. Right. Oh. Now, Mark, out, out of all the 100 plus countries that you've been to, what 
what was your favorite let's say top three places that you've ever been to well it's it's very difficult because everybody has something unique sure but as far as uh you know when you look at the western world uh, i've always kind of enjoyed vienna because it's got the music background with bach and beethoven and everything and mozart and it's got the coffee shops and i was just there a year ago in december and uh i still enjoy vienna as a, as a very beautiful place uh Recently, we were in Indonesia. Uh, it's got so much history there, both uh, you know Hindu and Buddhist uh, background as well. Today, it's Muslim, but it's fascinating culture there. Uh, the food is fascinating. Uh, Jakarta was beautiful. My wife comes from Jakarta, so mm-hmm. she was actually born. Her dad was Chinese. Her mom was Dutch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a wonderful place to visit. Uh, I'm still waiting to go to Bali. <laughs> okay. And then uh, a third place, oh, that's probably pretty hard. I, uh, you know, there's so many nice places. I personally enjoy Tbilisi because I have so many friends there now. Uh, because I'm in the lawyer, you know, I had the lawyer business, so I have a lot of lawyer friends that have. What was the uh, place you mentioned in Florida? You said there was the be- best beaches in the world. Oh, Destin, Florida. Destin, beautiful. Florida, that's right. Yes, there are beautiful places in the U.S., and I've been to all 50 states. I love going to Alaska. I love the Alaskan cruise. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Destin, Florida, I think, does have the most beautiful beaches there, and one of my college classmates lives down there so at, at your sixth grade reunion when you said Destin Florida I think like 19 of them were like yes daddy's the best <laughs> place in the world I was like what I gotta go there this is, sounds great yeah. well there must be something to Florida because my grandma lives in Florida yes. and she has all these friends from New York and they've known each other for decades and it seems like all of her New York friends all seem to move to the same area of Florida. <laughs> and it's so nice because they still get together. Right. They go out for yes. brunch. They go out for dinner. Absolutely. Well, my yeah. two favorite places as far as states in the United States would be Colorado. I love the mountains. I love the, vale. the atmosphere, the Vail, Colorado. Sure. And then Hawaii because I love the ocean. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I enjoy visiting Honolulu. I enjoy visiting Vail. And uh, yeah, nice. I used to love skiing all the time, but now I've lightened up on the skiing aspect but still it's beautiful with the snow and blue skies and sunshine well love it mark thank you so much for for, for doing this and uh yeah there's a lot to be learned from your adventures in your life and i feel like the things that i've taken away a lot from you is again don't take things personally be spontaneous take adventures do what you love uh money management is extremely important money and enjoy life yep Mm -hmm. that'd be my Best statements. Manage your money and enjoy life. I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation <laughs> and to share your many stories and words of wisdom in so many areas, whether it's yeah. words of wisdom financially, words of wisdom about life in general. I'm so glad that <laughs> people are getting to see this because I really think you have so many amazing stories and and, 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 and it's crazy. You two are both share. amazing <laughs> as well. My goodness, you you know this magic world and the finance world. <laughs> It's Appreciate amazing, it, man. It's, it's an and, and Mark, well. by the way, Thank watches you. Graham and Jeremy and Kevin and all those guys. <laughs> and it's 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 fascinating because everything we talked about is probably like one percent of all the things that we've talked about throughout the years. Right. This is like the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Just scratching so the surface. It really is. It really is. So I appreciate you coming yes. on, Mark. Thank, Thank you, so you for much, doing Mark. this. What a wonderful conversation. It's yeah. Really fun.